Let's begin with uh, paying homage to the Buddha. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa And before we begin with uh, questions and maybe some answers, there is one announcement, and that has to do with the practice meeting schedule. So tomorrow, starting tomorrow, as you know, Bonte will start his three days of uh, practice meetings, and, and the schedule has changed a little bit. So if you've checked it already before, please check it again. It check, um, basically, the schedule for the next three days is identical to the last three days. Consistency is good. So just check it again. It's not that different, but just check it. So I will start. You mentioned in our meeting that awareness is conditioned. This aligns with my direct experience. Yet I've heard people say that it is unconditioned and know there is something of an ongoing debate about this in scholarly circles, which you kindly explain both sides. So, yes, there is a debate in scholarly circles, and um, and basically, the the two views um, and and I'll ask Bonte to to also add. We were discussing this earlier at lunch. So, so the view, the the perspective that uh, consciousness and awareness is uh, conditioned and it arises and passes in every moment, arises and passes, arises and passes, arises and passes. Um, That is um, a view that is aligned with Abhidhamma especially, um, which is a momentary arising and passing of everything, consciousness including. There is the what's called the bhavanga consciousness, which is the life continuum consciousness, but also that that arises and passes. But that gives some sense of continuity, but other, all other consciousnesses and awareness of objects, of the six sense doors, every moment they arise and pass away. They are conditioned. Um, they are conditioned on many things, on materiality, on the body. They're, they're conditioned on the object arising and the con- consciousness arising at that particular door, say, um, sound consciousness arising at the ear door and uh, a sound arising at the ear door and sound consciousness meeting it immediately at the ear door and the perception arising etc um, so so that is one view everything is conditioned including awareness it's conditioned it arises and passes away every moment and 
there is also one um, view that, um, and that's more in the um, um, a, a view that uh, w- w- when one practices in the Theravada lineage of um, the uh, the Thai forest tradition, um, there seems to be a sense of awareness being this constant, being this unconditioned knowing that's always there. And sometimes it's equated perhaps of completely resting in that with anything else attached. That is sometimes equated with with experience of Nibbana. So so as you can imagine there there are very lively debate sometimes within Theravada about what's right, what's not right. Um, And uh, see for yourself. (laughs) See for yourself. So that's the best I can characterize the debate. And um, and personally, I think it, it may not be appropriate to take a side and just really have a don't know mind in a way. And um, and and let your experience be your guide, and also not be so attached to your experience either. A lightness, a sense of lightness. It doesn't have to be one way or the other. I think um, attachment to views is um, is not conducive to freedom and liberation, true freedom and ease and liberation. So even let that go, even let holding to a particular view, especially if it's a heady view, it's a belief, even let that go. And Bhante, would you like to add? Uh, Maybe I will add something, but again, it should not be a source of controversies or kind of doubts that uh, will make us uh, wonder, is uh, is consciousness something permanent or not permanent? But uh, as you mentioned, you know, some of aspects of the Thai tradition that uh, sometimes they see consciousness as something permanent and awareness as something in the background that is stable and always present and unconditioned. So this point of view, actually, I was told by some people from that uh, tradition that actually aspect of the Thai Buddhism, like this is what I heard, uh, that aspect of uh, that tradition has been also influenced by the philosophy of uh, Brahm- Brahmanic, you know, Vedanta and things like this, so that uh, uh, consciousness by itself will be, you know, uh, the aim of the practice and consciousness by itself can be uh, a source of permanent uh, liberation. So. Where that interpretation could have come from is definitely from the influence of uh, Brahmanism or Hindu philosophy, but also uh, sometimes in the Buddhist text we see that uh, consciousness is represented as something pure and luminous and uh, something that is uh, also sometimes associated more or less with Nibbana, but the interpretation, traditional interpretation of that from the commentary is that uh, the consciousness that is experiencing Nibbana, then since Nibbana is unconditioned, then that consciousness more or less will be unconditioned. So there is an influence of the object on 
the thing that is observing the object. So this is uh, one aspect of it. But definitely, in most of the texts, we see that consciousness is always conscious of something. And uh, in some aspects of the vipassana, then uh, when there is consciousness, also we can be conscious of something. So in the practice of uh, uh, deep insight, we are using consciousness to observe consciousness. So we are conscious of consciousness. And sometimes we can be, I mean, the, the process of observing is made in a way that consciousness is observing consciousness that is ob- that is observing consciousness of consciousness and then there is no end. So the purpose of that is just to see that there is a continuity of observation and that observation is also a consciousness that can be observed and it is dependent on the object of, in this case, consciousness. So consciousness can be the, ob- the object of consciousness but it's always arising and passing away. our experience also can tell about it. There is also a controversy like in the Majjhima Nikaya, you know, the Sutta number 28, then there is that, that debate that, uh, the, that, uh, that consciousness is reborn and something consciousness is something permanent. So then the Buddha gives the simile of uh, firewood or a fire, and he says that uh, as we have many types of fire, then also we have many types of consciousness. So depending on the fuel or the combustible that we are using for uh, the fire, then we can say this is a fire of grass, this is a fire of uh, branches, this is a fire of paper, or this is a fire of this or that. Or so depending on the object of which by which consciousness is arising, then uh, you will have that specific consciousness, but in no way is there a pure consciousness where, is not a, that where it is not arising uh, in dependence on a, an object. Also, uh, sometimes Nibbana is described as a consciousness without support. And here the name support is Aramana, which means also object. So that type of consciousness is arising as having, obje- as having Nibbana as its subject, but that means that uh, Nibbana is the support for the consciousness, but Nibbana as such is, is, is not, it's beyond the object, so in this way, you know, in this way it can, uh, it can bring to, to, to questioning, so the thing is, is we have to make uh, our experience the the final uh, conclusion. Bhante, I really appreciate you bringing the, the Majjhima Nikaya Sutta about consciousness being described as different types of fire dependent on different types of grass because they're, or, or different kind of material object that it is burning from because there is this, again, beautiful simile of how consciousness is arising, is dependent on an object, it's not independent. So uh, really appreciate that and the clarity that it brings in. Yes, like it's a really a question of dependence, a mm-hmm. question also of, of causality. Mm-hmm. So right. in this sutta, then there is no other consciousness that is spoken about. It's always independence of uh, something. It's the Majjhima 28. Hmm?
So I will go on with uh, then another question. Is uh, how is supporting conditioning different from the other conditionings? For example, a visual object is a supporting condition for seeing consciousness to arise. But this is also called object condition. So we see that uh, here is that the, the, the point is that uh, there are many causes and conditions for something to arise. So we see A is a cause and B is the effect. And Z, for example, is a relationship. Uh, how these two things, the cause and effect, are relating to each other. So in this case, we have the visual object and then we, we have the visual consciousness. So A the visual consciousness is the cause for consciousness to arise, B. But the way that they are relating can be multiple. That means it can relate with the object condition. So we can see that as because of the object, then consciousness arises. But also, still keeping the object condition in perspective, then we see that uh, the object also will be a support condition. So we have A and B, but the condition, another condition will be a support. So not only it's an object condition, but also it's a support, it's a supportive condition. And also it's a very strong supportive condition. That means a remote supportive condition. Also we can see like if we look at the many types of conditioning, or we can see that for example, that uh, it's not the same. So the object is one and then the effect uh, is another one. So uh, we have a sense of dissociation. So A is not B. So this is a type of relationship also. And also we see that this is arising at the same time. So we have the cause A, B, and also since A and B relates to each other in the present moment, at the same moment, then it's a uh, it has the presence condition, another type of condition. So uh, this is how you know this uh, conditioning is different from another type of conditioning. But to remember that uh, for one thing to arise, uh, not only one causes will be uh, supporting it or will be the reason for it. So what uh, I'd like to add to that is uh, as, as I understand the question, and as, as Bonte has described, <coughs> a, a uh, condition, an effect, there can be multiple relationships between them. It doesn't have to be just one. So, for example, um, the one I mentioned this morning, the supporting condition is a pretty general one. Uh, in Pali, Nisea, Nisea, um, and then, for example, there's another condition. Um, I think it's Pali's Upanisaya, Upa, yeah, Upanisaya, which is Nisaya, but Upanisaya. What is that? That's a strong supportive condition. So it's still a support. So it's a, still a supportive condition, but it's a strong supportive condition. Um, so, so a condition can be both Nisaya and Upanisaya, but Nisaya, but Upanisaya is a is a more 
um, more descriptive description of that. So they're not exclusive, these different categorizations. For example, I can say that, um, you know, this person is a relative of mine. This person is a brother of mine. They're not exclusive. It's just brother is a more well-defined relationship, but they're still a relative of mine. So you can hold these different types of conditions that we've introduced and we'll be introducing some are sub, um, are, are sub cases of the other. And the supportive condition, Nisea, is a pretty general one. Another, another question here. Any thoughts on the role of a grieving process in the insights, knowledge of vision, knowledge, knowledge and vision of things as they really are, etc., like disenchanted and dispassion and the rest of it? So, what is a grieving process actually? What does it involve? What is the experience of a grieving process except? The feeling, how the feeling also is affecting our body, how the feeling also is, ex- is, effe- is affecting the rest of our consciousness. So if we define or if we look at the experience of grief, actually it will combine all our existence, our body and our mind. So if we define body and mind as the five aggregates and then we see griefs, grief as a combination of all these things by observing the experience of grief, then we open our eyes to a reality. And then we see the things as they are. This is grief. So this is related to knowledge and vision of things as they really are. And then by really observing something, whether it is grief or happiness or anything like this, then we use that as a support to understand, you know, how does that fit into uh, the path? How, the, uh, how does it fit into uh, our development? How this experience is going to bring more clarity and understanding of life itself. This is part of life. So depending on how we relate to grief, then this is the big difference. So, if again, if we define, if we classify the experience of grief in the, in the class of feeling, in the class of Vedana, as Dhammanasa, that means this is an unpleasant mental feeling, then we see that with all the types of feelings, what is important actually is the outcome of our experience. So sometimes we, ha- we can have pleasant feeling that will bring unskillful mental states. So these unpleasant, f- these pleasant feelings we should not be cultivated also. They should not be, they should be abandoned. But also we have pleasant feeling who will bring very awesome, uh, awesome mental states. So these feelings should be cultivated. In the same way of with grief, this is a painful feeling, a painful mental feeling. So 
if a painful mental feeling or physical feeling is as as its outcome positive and skillful mental states, then it should be developed. That means we should not run away but use it as a tool to develop understanding. And this can be a source of joy. So in pain, the pain itself is not pleasant, but the pain can be uh, a way to get out of uh, misery. Next question. Quote unquote, enjoy the present, or quote, enjoy the present moment, unquote, by Ajahn Suchito. Um, July 17th AM, Reflections by Nikki. So this is uh, just to remind you, this question has to do with me quoting in my talk um, from the pamphlet Joy of Samadhi by Ajahn Suchito, where He says, I think of enjoyment as receiving joy and samadhi as the the art of refined enjoyment. It is the careful collecting of oneself to the joy of the present moment. Joyfulness means there is no fear, no tension, no ought to. There isn't anything we have to do about it. So there is stillness. It's just this. Would you kindly provide and explain any canonical references supporting such an exhortation by the enlightened one? My observation is that this expression, often heard nowadays in reference to meditation practice, has a connotation of sensual pleasure or enjoyment, which would be contradictory to the Buddha's exhortations. I really appreciate the question because I think there is a, um, it's, it's quite pervasive actually. I think this, this misunderstanding um, that, that Buddhism is kind of a killjoy practice, no joy. Joy is bad, don't feel it. It's, it's away, away, it's just dukkha, 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 and then more dukkha. And that's the way to freedom. Um, so I really appreciate the, the thoughtfulness of this question, bringing it up so that we can discuss it more. So, in many places the Buddha talks about this. One example is in the Satipatthana Sutta, where you know, it's, it's, it's a primary teaching resource for us. And in the second foundation of mindfulness, knowing Vedana, knowing hedonic tone, feeling tone, clearly knowing, clearly seeing. Pleasant, the word for pleasant is sukham. Unpleasant is asukam. And then neither pleasant or not neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Sukham and then something asukam, neither that nor the other. Anyway. Um, so sukham that's bliss, that's pleasure, that's 
enjoyment. So clearly knowing, clearly knowing that, clearly seeing what enjoyment is, clearly getting to really familiarize yourself with that, just as much as you could get to know asukam, unpleasant, the unpleasant, the what is also the the extension to dukkha. You really get to know what the what the um, what dukkha is, what unpleasant is. It clearly knowing, really clearly knowing and seeing. So when you clearly know joy, bliss, pleasant, by definition, you're clearly knowing it. You're not creating an aversive wall between yourself and the experience. You're clearly knowing it. You're clearly drenching in the enjoyment. And what's really important, you're you're not attaching to it. That's really what's important. You know, if if I held this piece of paper, is this... And suppose this was joy, delight, and I was just squeezing it and didn't let it go. That's not the practice, of course. The same way with dukkha. If you got attached to your unpleasant, to your asukam, to your dukkha feelings, that's not practice. It's clearly knowing, clearly, clearly knowing what it is. And then letting it fly. Clearly knowing what it is and letting it go. So that's one example I like to bring up also. In the Abhidhamma view, the wholesome mental states, the wholesome mental states, um, for example, the the jhanic mental states, having, um, I think, some of them having uh, 50, 30, I forget the number of mental factors, Bond, to help me out with the first jhana. 34. With the mental factors, there is, you know, there is... Uh, sukha as a part of it. The pleasure is actually a part. It's, it's there. It's clearly known. And the Vedana, the tone of the Vedana, the feeling tone there is sukha, is clearly there, as well as the other jhanic factors, the, the, the jhana states, as well as many other wholesome states of mind. The, the, they have sukha and they have the Vedana, which is sukha. So clearly knowing this, you know, there cannot be this wall, this separation, this, oh, this is bad, like this, this fear. But what is also really important is not to bind ourselves to it, knowing that it, it's impermanent. It comes and it goes. It's like any other experience. Not attach yourself to it and not distance yourself from it. Allow it to arise, allow it to be experienced, fully known, and allow it to pass. There's a beautiful poem by William Blake that really depicts this beautifully. The name of the poem is Eternity. And William Blake says, He who binds, himself, he who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. He who kisses the joy as it flies lives in the eternity sunrise. So kiss the joy as it flies through, as it's experienced. No aversion and no, no wanting, no tanha, no desiring, but, but really clearly knowing it, clearly knowing it. As we clearly know 
everything. We clearly, we don't leave any stone unturned in this practice. We clearly know everything. We don't shy away from anything, from pleasant, unpleasant, joy, fear, sadness, just feel it all, know it all, truly know and see it all, and see its nature, see that it's impermanent, see that it's hollow, see that it's not self, see that it's deeply unsatisfactory, and yet get to know it. So we will go to another question that is a little bit personal, so uh, it is to both of us and uh, it asks, uh, could you share a war story or two from your own early practice days so we can see how it looks in the trenches as well (laughs) as from the other shore with reverence. Don't make a drama out of uh, the question. So, you like to say something? Sure, I can start, or you can yeah. start, Bante. You, you want my war story first? Oh, if I am polite, yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, so let's see. So, a story from um, early part of my practice. Um, so. Um, Remember on one retreat, you know, every retreat is different. Every retreat is different. I hope you know this by now. You can't come in with expectations that this retreat will be like this or this retreat would be like that. That's, uh, that's setting up yourself for a lot of disappointment and uh, suffering. So in this particular practice, in this particular retreat, I had just come in <coughs> from, um, from a very difficult personal situation that um, that that was still in my heart and mind space. And the practice that I was doing was actually anapanasati and practice of concentration on that retreat. And what I would find was I would, um, you know, I would have all the conditions in place. I knew how, you know, how this worked, how samadhi and, and the practice of samatha. And I would practice, practice, practice diligently the whole day. And by the end of the the day, I would be in first jhana. And then at night, I would have this very difficult, angry dream with the situation that had just happened before the retreat. And I would wake up in the morning completely discombobulated and my samadhi would just be all gone and I was nowhere close to even upachara samadhi. Access concentration was all gone. So I would work again all day, all day, collect it, collect it, collect it. By the end of the evening, oh, okay, first jhana, all right. And then again at night, I would have this completely angry dream about this situation, about this person. So I think this happened for two or three nights until I was just exhausted. It just, it was, it felt like Sisyphus. I was pushing this, this big rock up the hill and it would just be coming rolling back through my subconscious. I decided, okay, enough of Anapanasati. I gave it up for a few days and just started to do intense metta. Intense metta for myself, intense metta for this other person with whom we were entangled in this situation, the two of us. And I just did metta for a few days. That's all I did, morning, night, eating, sitting, walking, metta, metta, metta. 
and it was like water on fire. It just, it all cleared up and my mind was at peace, my body was at peace. And then I knew at that point it was clear to me that I could then go back to Anapanasati. And then after that it was smooth sailing. So that's the war story for you. It felt like a war, but... Bonte? Actually, you know, whatever experience we will describe will could also be related to any experience that you are having in your meditation because we are all talking about the same thing. And then the more we have experience, the more uh, the biggest range of stories we can come up with. So, uh, but since the question is about personal issues or you know things like this, then I would like to mention that uh, as myself, as a young monk, you know, with uh, the enthusiasm that you you have uh, by that type of dedication, which is seen, I mean, from our sometimes beginner's point of view as something, oh, the meditation is so important, and then you become a monk, and then you devote your whole life to it, that at some point you do it to, some, to such an extent because when you are a monastic, that's the only thing almost you know, that you are able to do. I mean, you can do other things, but uh, uh, the facilities that in which you can find yourself are so supportive to meditate that you can do it a lot. Huh? And then you can do only that for months and then some, for sometimes for, for years. So the thing is that uh, if you don't know or if you forget, or if you have not yet the experience of uh, realizing, if you don't, have, if we don't have the uh, uh, the understanding that actually monastic life is the practice. That means the, the whole life, not only the meditation practice, will be the practice, but the whole of it. Just like you, we all have a life, and the whole of our life will be part of our practice. So we cannot say the practice is only with the meditation or only in the retreat. Everything has to be included. So anyway, uh, in these young years, then I did so much of the meditation that uh, uh, somehow my, I, will, I will just go into the meditation, but the samadhi was a little bit too strong. Huh? And uh, this caused a difficulty to relate to people and then to relate to properly to situations. I was just, you just go into kind of uh, you know, peaceful states of mind, but it is uh, somehow disconnected for, from the reality. So there was definitely a misadjustment there and uh, something missing because, uh, because uh, you know, life is also uh, the direct encounter and then also the proper encounter that we need to have in relation to everything, in relation to everybody. So uh, with, the, with the experiences, I mean, with, the, with time, then I learned and then I made friends and, uh, you know, the, 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 that, you know, weakness, somehow it can be also a weakness, you know, got uh, worked out and then everything come to, came to be understood in a way that uh, my life came to be a little bit more harmonized with, uh, with something uh, of a continuity. So instead of uh, seeing life as a sprint, you know, for running, then you see life as a marathon. That means you have to keep it on for a long time. So that means just be careful with your energies and how you balance your energies. And also, I will say that uh, this type of understanding that also you have, 
or and also that you may have also uh, uh, after retreats, whether it's a one week retreat or sometimes even a few days retreat, but of course after one month or a few months retreat, people have difficulty to, or they have challenge at least to uh, adapt again to their daily life because the rhythm is not, is not the same. So this problem also has been, you know, looked at from various aspects from the teachers because uh, this should not necessarily be, uh, uh, I mean, that challenge should be considered in ways that solution could be brought, you know, so that to facilitate and then to, 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 to cut the gap with, with these uh, extreme type of uh, mis, I mean, this, uh, misadjustment. And this is why, actually, we came, you know, like uh, the, the, the three modes of mindfulness that, I am, that we are talking about actually came from uh, looking at the gra- gradual training that we see exposed as a way of teaching in the, in the Buddhist text. So the, so the Buddha emphasized that the, the, the progress is something gradual and also uh, a type of structure is given, you know, as a, this is the gradual training, so it starts with sila and then with sila also we have the controlling the sense faculties and then clear understanding of what you are doing and then getting rid of the hindrances and moderation in food and everything. So that gradual training, that for our, from our point of view, we technically divided by identifying four modes of mindfulness, then uh, this uh, this we, we made it as a tool to uh, to to teach us, you know, and then teach also people that okay now mindfulness has to be constant all the time in our life. But mindfulness, the modes of mindfulness needs to be adapted to the situation. So out of the gradual training, the technically the the technique. Uh, came to bring uh, a classification of four. So last year or previously, then we used uh, four modes of mindfulness. And now this year, we reduced it to three. And and, uh, the the peripheral, the specific, and the insight or analytical observation. So the thing here is that uh, we need to be able to function in all these modes of uh, mindfulness. and then uh, it is important to, 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 to see that uh, we are uh, efficient in all these three modes of mindfulness and also we are efficient into uh, knowing, okay, now I have to function in this mode of mindfulness. That means in a very practical, practical way, in a conventional uh, situation, in a conventional reality, whereas when I am in deep in meditation, then I can be working with uh, deeper aspects of samadhi or on seeing reality on from another perspective, that means with the perspective of, of vipassana. But uh, uh, these have to be related. I mean, they, these have to be adjusted to uh, the situation in, in which we find ourselves. So this, is, uh, this was actually, I think, uh, a big, a big uh, I mean, it, 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 it became a challenge for me, but I, it, 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 it was solved, it, it got solved. So before I um, read the last question I have, um, I had a refle- reflection I just remembered actually when Bonte and I were talking at lunch about a question I 
I responded to earlier, and there was one other aspect of it that I wanted to bring in and mention, and that's the question regarding um, Ajahn Suchito's enjoying the present moment versus uh, the interpretation of sensual pleasure. And one thing that we're discussing, and I wanted to also make sure to bring in, is that um, there is an enjoyment, there is a delight in knowing, in clear knowing, in, is, is the pleasure of seeing clearly. And that's what I was referring to in the mind states, in, um, in wholesome mind states, which is mindful, a mind state has clear mindfulness is a wholesome mind state. Those mindful, um, uh, those states do have uh, sukha as one of the chetasikas as one of the uh, mental factors. So without getting too technical, just staying in lay language, just look into your own experience when you know something clearly, when there is uh, sati, whether it's peripheral sati, as Bhante was just talking about, or, or specific knowing or insight knowing, there is an enjoyment in the knowing. There's a pleasure in the knowing. And it's not a sensual pleasure. It's, it's a delight in the knowing and being present and seeing clearly and it's it's delicious it's really wonderful to clearly know to be aware in that way to have sati the last question would you be willing to go into more detail about rebirth versus incarnation so not so much detail, perhaps, uh, as we um, touched into it last time. Um, and I offered the simile of the billiard balls as, as um, reincarnation, um, being the billiard ball that's moving and is changing color and is the same ball that moves. And rebirth, which is the, the belief... Um, the view held in Buddhism is uh, rebirth is the billiard ball is moving with kinetic energy and it hits another ball and it transfer the karmic potential to the next ball. So it's a different being that's being created, but it's from the causes and conditions that have come together. So, and the reason for these two differences, these two views, and you know, in the in the Vedantic um, view, world view, because there is an atta, there is a self, there is a center that gets reincarnated. So it's the same self that's going from one life to the next, to the next, to the next. So it's a little heavier, just the same self. Whereas in, in Buddhism, with rebirth, there is no atta, there is no self, there is no center, it's anatta, there is no self. So there is no self that, that keeps trudging through one life and the next. It's, it's after one life, it's done, it's finished, let go, complete. Yet it's the, the actions, it's the causes and conditions that we have put into place that keep reproducing future results. And one way to relate to it is when you do good deeds, good actions, they reverberate through the world. And the, the actions 
they um, they affect others, and that those others are not is not necessarily you, but others get affected by by those actions. So so there is, I think that's a healthier way to see that. Um, which is again why practicing with causes and conditions, the causes that have come to be um, and and create. For example, when we see when something shows up at the, the ear door, you know, what the perception that comes up, the thought that comes up, the story that comes up, the angry story that comes up, etc., etc., to see that chain, to see the conditionality that gets put into place because the conditions that have been put in place for us. And also to see to see our own karma, to see our actions as a way of empowerment, of, of paying it forward. It's an empowerment of this moment conditions the next moment. So whatever we do, we think, we, we incline our minds towards in this moment is actually conditioning the next moment. If this moment we're, we're inclining to wholesome thoughts and actions, then the next moment, the, the probability of, of more wholesome thoughts and actions arising is higher. So thinking of, of it as that way. So, so I'll leave it as that in terms of the differences and, and, um, and also I invite you as we're practicing here not to get heady at all about rebirth and reincarnation, which is true, which is right. Do I need to believe it to be a good Buddhist, card-carrying Buddhist? No, let it all be, let it all be. It's in this life, in this very life, liberation, freedom, in this very life. And, and hold it with a don't know mind. You don't have to believe one way or the other. Holding a, a tight view, holding views with a tight fist is not supportive or helpful. Just, just this moment, just this moment, just this life, just now. Can I be more free in this moment? Can there be more ease, more love, more compassion towards myself, towards others in this moment? Can there be more wisdom just in this moment? Like just to clarify, or you know, the, the, the question also was related to the interpretation of rebirth or reincarnation. So the concept also refers, like if you read the, the Majima 28, the description, the description of, of craving. Huh? So there actually it is explained, the, the, the argument that was in that sutta is that uh, one person was saying that consciousness get reborn in another life. And then the Buddha uh, defined the process as no, there is no, there is no rebirth. There is no, uh, I mean, in this sense, we could interpret the word rebirth as the rebirth of consciousness or the rebirth of a self or the rebirth of a, of a permanent entity, rebirth of a soul. But when the word, sorry, we call not rebirth, but reincarnation. So it's an incarnation and then another incarnation. So this is a permanent incarnation of a soul. 
right? Something like this, or a consciousness. But rebirth actually just means the re-arising of a process, and the rebirth can also happen in every moment of consciousness. So somehow, in every moment of consciousness, there is rebirth because it's always arising and passing away. So the concepts, the the, the, the terms that are here, uh, question is about okay now. Do we call that rebirth or reincarnation? So that's why also uh, the Buddha choose. I mean, uh, that's why also the, maybe the the word uh, rebirth will be more appropriate instead of reincarnation. Bhante, I'd like to highlight you bringing in the idea of, of rebirth also in this moment, everything getting born from causes and conditions, everything being born and then passing and then being reborn and passing and being reborn and passing. And I think that's a wonderful way to hold rebirth with a dono mind in a one-life model, which is what some some teachers teach, so... Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. We wish you a wonderful afternoon of practice. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.